0: Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I am your host, Mark Lautenschläger, and joining me today is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Casten smith And yes, despite the fact that I sound like I've been gargling with razor blades all night, this is me. I am here. <laughs> the, voice is, the voice may not be, but I'm here. And, um, you know, uh, giving everybody a health update would be too long. But uh, I sure appreciate you folks praying for me. Some of you have sent emails telling us about that, and I am so grateful, unbelievably grateful, that people Mm -hmm. are praying for my recovery. Uh, Please continue to do so. We are still in the woods, we got some work to do, and I hope someday to have my voice back. But we'll see you know, God's the only one that knows whether I get it back or not. So maybe I'll continue to be that horse sounding guy that took Mark's job. (laughs) So.
1: <laughs> it's still better than the nasally guy that i am
0: no not at all <laughs> i mean i've listened to myself back on this and i'm like wow i keep thinking that poor guy must feel so bad i don't have a sore throat understand this is from whatever's going on with me and it's not a sore throat so it doesn't hurt to talk it just sounds like it should be hurting to talk so uh bear with me as i uh get through this and again Thank you hmm. so much for your prayers. Um, we're coming this week to Mark chapter 11 uh, in in week 11 of our study. And this chapter, Sam, starts off with something that is like super famous. Mm-hmm. It starts off with a triumphal entry. And it's just – it's one of those things that it's the catalyst for Palm Sunday because they put the palm branches down in front of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, – Mark says leafy branches. Others say palm, you know, palm branches. But at any rate, it was it was. This is what Palm Sunday comes from,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and um, we get that feeling that this was a big deal. Hey, it made it into a. It's the start of Holy Week. It made it into that. So, but when we were talking about it earlier, you and I, we said it really by rights should have been so much more that Jesus Mm -hmm. really kind of suppressed this. Uh, Why do you think that Jesus needed to sort of hold back on, you know, coming in with the full glory light on?
1: Yeah, well, in the ancient world, if you go back and you look at Roman cultures, when you had a conquering king or a conquering general emperor who was going to be honored by the people, it was called a triumph march. Um, We have Arch of Triumphs that are all over Rome where you know generals were celebrated in this way. And what would happen is they would come back from a battle or a war or a coronation and they would have these marches going into the capital city where all of the people would line the streets to honor him. And this became – the Bible I don't think anywhere refers to it as the triumphal entry. It's the name that's been given to it because – It looks a lot like those marches where Jesus is coming into the city. He's essentially claiming the title as, you know, the messianic king in some sense, but everything about it is totally different than the way the Romans did it. You know, the Roman king came in and he wanted all glory. He wanted all praise. He wanted to be on the chariot, drawn by four horses and everything else, you know, all the ways to be honored. But when Jesus comes in, he comes in entirely opposite. He's going to come in lowly and, and riding on a donkey, and everything about the way that he comes in is kind of countercultural to the way the world works, yeah. and that's meant to teach us something. You know, he's, in the last chapter or two, you know, he has repeatedly told his people that if you want to lead, if you want to be exalted, how do you do that? You have to become the servant. You have to be humbled in order to be exalted. And so, here he comes into this coronation of suffering, really, um, where he's going to give his own life in this week. And he's showing that the king comes lowly yeah. and eager to sacrifice for others. That first
0: shall be last rule applied to him also at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, totally. totally. He He modeled it better than anyone else ever had or ever will.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, jump into it, for, uh, chapter eleven, verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, Bethphage, by the way, is uh, isn't that the how is the house of figs one?
1: So yeah, one means the house of figs, and the other one is the house of dates. So Bates. it's bet, and Hebrew is uh, house. So you always see that in like synagogues, yeah. or Beth or Beth L or Beth this or Beth that. And say so this is the house of figs, is Bethphage, and Beth, the house of dates, is Bethany, but Ani. Okay. okay, but so, they're both on the other side of the Mount of Olives.
0: So we, we will expect to encounter some figs in this chapter. <laughs> uh, so he comes into to, uh, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, "Go into the village in front of you, and as immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat." untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and we will send it back here immediately. And they mm-hmm. went away and found a colt tied to a door outside in the street and they are untied and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said and they let him go. Um, as I was looking through that, I was like, a lot of these things that are, really small, almost like thrown away sentences. For example, like the one on which no one has ever sat. Mm -hmm. Those are all connected to prophecies in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm.
1: So, yeah, I mean, if you go to Zechariah, who's one of the the minor prophets of the Old Testament, you go to chapter 9, verse 9, and one of the lines that was given about the coming Messiah is – Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. So this is the Messianic king, the anointed one. And it says, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So that's the prophecy. And everybody knew that when when the Messiah was coming, that's how he would come. And when it talks about how this is a donkey upon which no one had sat, Again, it's referring, it's giving a nod to his deity. It means, see, this is not a tame donkey. No one's ever ridden on this. It's not broken. So who is it that would be able to get on a donkey, which is considered one of the most stubborn animals on the face of the planet, that's difficult to tame, actually. And the first time anyone ever gets on top of this donkey, it does exactly as it's told. You know, this is another nod that the one who is on that donkey's back is the master of all creation who commands not only nature uh, with all the elements and everything else, but the animals, right. you know, this animal submits to the will of Jesus.
0: Yeah. Um, and also the the fact that the owners immediately accepted that, like, I, no question, we know what's going on here. Um, and it doesn't really say it was the owners that asked the question, but I think it probably was. Um, yeah. You know, and when they heard the answer, they were like, okay, go. Um, yeah, you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, they knew they knew Jesus. Yeah. Somehow they were like, "Oh, okay, got it."
0: I think that by this time, a lot of people around Jerusalem knew Jesus, mm-hmm. especially at this time, because there were a lot of people that had come back to the area from, you know, out in the in the wilderness—not wilderness, but the the rural areas, certainly mm-hmm. away from the big cities—and said, "Yeah, you should see this guy, Jesus. You know, he's mm-hmm. healing people." He's teaching like we've never heard teaching before um, a couple times he's fed people you know with food that he just he just made it while he was there like it came to mm-hmm. be that kind of thing so I think that I think that the reputation of Jesus had spread by that point
1: totally and the other gospels you'll actually you'll you'll find that where the religious leaders all the crowds are going out to see Jesus and the religious leaders actually say the whole world is going after him. Um, And and they're afraid to arrest him on the spot because the crowds were pursuing him, and they were afraid it would cause a riot initially when he comes into Jerusalem. So absolutely, Jesus was very famous. By this point in his ministry, if you didn't know or hadn't heard anything about Jesus, you had to be living under a rock, essentially. Um, So yeah, he's he's definitely famous.
0: Verse 7, it says, And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, And he sat on it uh, and noticed that it didn't run away. It was doing what it was told to do. And many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. What's the significance of the coats and the branches?
1: Well, the coats, there's, there's a place where Jehu, who's an Old Testament king, is going to be installed as a king over Israel, and the people line the road, kind of like rolling out the red carpet is the idea. Sure. You know, that even, even the donkey that you're riding upon shouldn't be soiled by the earth, you know. So we're going to lay down our coats, and we think, you know, oh, big deal, it's coats. Clothing was outrageously expensive. It was hard to make in the ancient world. So when you threw your coat down so that an animal could trample over it, along with all the caravans coming along behind him. That coat was going to suffer some damage, and so to put your coat down in front of something so that it can be the red carpet for this entourage, that's a sign that you were willing to sacrifice. Like, it was costly to put your coat down, Um, and that was also a symbol of a coming king. You would do that in the ancient world, but then the palm branches, it doesn't say palm branches here, but in the other gospels, the the leafy branches, they're, they're palm branches, and the palm was considered a sign of of prosperity. You know, Jericho, which was one of the wealthier cities of the whole region back then, was called the City of Palms. But all throughout every different kind of mythology, the palm was always associated with victory, eternality, and life. So Nike, the, the Greek goddess of victory, is always, you know, you'll see her holding the palm branch. Or if you go down into Egypt, the god of eternity or immortality would always be holding the palm branch. Um, and so that's what it was associated with. And so laying the road not only with your cloak, which was very valuable to you, but also laying it with palm branches, which had tremendous significance. And And in Jewish, by the way, in the temple, there were palm branches and stuff like that. So, laying that in front of him was saying, You are the king, you are anointed, this is your coronation, and we are paving the road for immortality and victory for you, is kind of the idea.
0: You know, it's interesting. Um, You said cloaks a bunch of times, or coats a bunch of times. And there is a difference between a coat and a cloak. A cloak is a much Mm -hmm. more formal thing, it's much more expensive, it's made from much better material, it's Mm -hmm. made to be, you know, to kind of show your station, uh, there will be things on it that let people know if you're important or not. Uh, mm-hmm. Are you familiar with the Doctor Strange movies, the Marvel Doctor Strange movies?
1: I, I know of them. Okay. I don't know that I've watched them. I probably fell asleep as my children were watching. Them. Okay, <laughs> that, that's that's a theme in our house. Yeah.
0: So I watched them both. Now I watched the second one because it's on streaming finally. And <clears throat> he has a cloak, a magic cloak. And this cloak animates and does things like it'll fly off his back and go grab a bad guy by the ankle and hold him upside down and then jump back onto his back. So it's, a, it's like a character in the film. And at mm-hmm. one point, someone's talking to him and they say, we even know about your magic coat. And Benedict Cumberbatch, who's the actor there, says uh, it's a, a cloak actually, but never mind that right now. And it's like he was highly offended <laughs> and somebody called his coat, his cloak rather, a coat. So I think that uh, as I look at that and I see they threw their cloaks on it, I'm like, mm-hmm. they they brought out the good stuff. They brought out their best and most important piece of clothing. You know, That's good. Uh, you know Jesus had a cloak also. You remember what happened to that at the, clo- at the cross, right? It was made mm-hmm. from one solid piece of material, which meant that it was an extremely valuable cloak just for how it was made. And they didn't want to rip it apart. So a cloak was a, a, a big thing.
1: In Roman society, the cloak determined your identity. You were, you were going down that road. But like in Rome, they had specific colors that you could wear depending on which station of life you were. You know, if you were nobility, if you were a senator, if you were an emperor. You know, one of the reasons why they say Julius Caesar got assassinated is because he dared to wear colors that were associated only with the emperor, and they were like, "Hold on a minute, He's claiming too much power." Uh, and so what you wore as a cloak thank you very much <laughs> was, Sorry. Was, very, was very much emblematic of your station in society. And so when you laid down your cloak, it was like you were laying down your identity in society.
0: Right. 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 You were saying, "I, no matter how important I am." This one's more important.
1: Yeah, that's good.
0: So um, as they did that, and those who went before, this is verse 9 now, and those who followed, so all these people that were surrounding Jesus, were shouting, Hosanna, which means save now, right?
1: Yeah, save us. Save us
0: now. Um, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's obviously referring to Jesus, which means that this crowd knew this guy comes in the name of the Lord. He's not coming on his own authority, coming in the name of the Lord. Blessed Mm -hmm. is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And I talked about that sentence in personal worship a little bit. I feel like it was kind of whether they understood this was the Messiah and to to cooperate with his mission to come in sort of low-key, they didn't say, you know, blessed is his Messiah um, Mm -hmm. or whether they didn't quite Understand that he was the Messiah yet that um, that this is significant, just in the sense that they didn't shout him out as God's Messiah.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, but also you know when they're doing that they're they're citing uh, Psalm one eighteen verse twenty five, and when you read that Psalm, it's very clearly. Referring to the to the Messiah in that, and so when they're when they're making that claim, when they're shouting out Hosanna, which means save us, you know, there's there's a lot to that too. Sure, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they're they're definitely recognizing this guy is the Messiah. He is the one set apart. And the other Gospels, the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, immediately, you know, they're freaking out that people are saying such stuff. That's blasphemous to them to claim that Jesus is worthy of these this kinds of statements and they say rebuke your disciples. And that's where Jesus says, you know, if if they don't, you know, give praise the rocks themselves will cry out. And so this is this is high intensity, you know, yeah. this in Luke's gospel they're shouting out, you know, that this is the one who's come to bring peace between heaven and men essentially. Like they recognize that this office is extremely, extremely important. That this isn't just an ordinary guy. Um, this is this is God's messengers, Messiah.
0: And that's why we've said that, um, you know, it was sort of a scaled down thing from what it really deserved to be. Because, mm-hmm. you know, by rights, it should have been Jesus coming in all His glory, and mm-hmm. everybody should should bow before Him. And it will mm-hmm. be someday when Jesus comes back next time. It's not going to be on a colt. It's going to be on a white horse. And my that's advice right. to you is bring sunglasses and even then maybe don't look straight into the light. So uh,
1: That's good. Yeah. But you know, like – and there's – the Old Testament has kind of trained your mind to recognize that good kings come on donkeys, quite quite frankly. Like if you go back into history, when when Abraham takes Isaac to Mount Moriah and it's kind of his triumphant moment of faith, he goes on a donkey you know when when Moses goes back to Egypt to deliver the people from Pharaoh's tyranny, he goes back on a donkey. Sure. And you know when you, when you get into the this is just kind of funny, but in the Old Testament when Israel demands a king, the Bible actually sp- spends an entire chapter, First Samuel chapter nine, and it's entirely devoted to Saul trying to find a donkey, but he can't find his donkeys. Mm-hmm. And then David, after he's anointed, goes to into The story and he's riding on a donkey When another one in First Kings chapter 1 When Adonijah steals the throne And he's trying to take it from David While he's on his deathbed What does he do? He has a big coronation with horses and chariots And lots of pomp and circumstance And oh my goodness look at how amazing Adonijah is But he's not the rightful king, and so David on his deathbed is giving instruction for Solomon to go out and take the throne because he's the rightful king. And what does David say? Get him my donkey, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And and there's this message that keeps coming that if somebody comes with this kind of brash and they need all the celebratory coronation and everyone look at me how mighty and wonderful I am – Man, that's not of the kingdom of God, because God's deliverers always come on donkeys. And your brain, reading the Old Testament, is kind of trained to see: Oh, they're coming on a donkey; they're go- they're going to be good; they're going to be good; they're going to bring deliverance and healing.
0: Yeah, it's a you know, it's a, it's a humility thing too.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Totally. Yeah, that's the number one mm-hmm. trait. Like. I remember when I was at FAU taking an educational leadership course and they asked, you know, what is the most important quality for a leader? And I was back and forth between wisdom and humility. But at the end of the day, like, the most important trait in a leader is humility to me. I I can follow somebody who's humble. Um, You know, wisdom, (laughs) you know, really, really important. But somebody who can recognize, who's teachable, who wants to learn, who empathizes and can enter into other people's experience, but have the conviction to do the right thing. Um, but humility is tremendous, and that's when Jesus is describing what leadership looks like. He doesn't say, well, they're correct on all the issues, and they, you know, they're forceful, and they drive through their agenda. He says, no, if you, you want to you lead, you better serve. And, you know, that's that's what you're seeing here. You know, he's coming lowly. That's really important. God yeah. is lifting up and saying, man, if you, if you want to be a leader, if you want to be a shepherd, if you want to be a pastor, if you want to lead people, you better learn how to serve. Because mm-hmm. that's how leaders do it in the kingdom of God.
0: Yeah. And verse 11, it wraps up with, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked at, around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Um, I think that, you know, we've been talking a lot about the mission of Jesus. And, you know, at this particular time, when Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, Jesus was coming to suffer for his people, to be killed by the Romans on a cross, and to rise from the dead. So that was his short-term mission, basically. That's what he was there to do. Um, how many people in that crowd... If we'd been there, Sam, and we'd been able to say, what's he doing here? How many people do you think would have said he's come to suffer for his people, to be killed on the cross by the Romans, and then to rise from the dead? Do you think anybody Uh... would have given that answer?
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if they did nobody stood up and said no 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 guys you don't understand i yeah. mean nobody's nobody's vocal about it yeah. everybody is totally under the impression that he is coming on a liberation mission from rome yeah. um even even those closest to him his disciples even at this point still are, are not getting it um the first time you see somebody at least i'm i'm speaking totally off the cuff without having researched this but the first time i can think of somebody as he enters jerusalem somebody who really gets it is mary of bethany so it says here that you know after going into jerusalem and looking around and i'm sure he's kind of disgusted with what he sees as we'll find later on in this chapter he goes back to bethany and he's staying at the house of mary and martha if you remember them and on on the before he's going to be arrested and crucified mary of bethany comes and begins to anoint his body and why is she doing that? Because she knows, I think, that he's going to be taken and killed, and she's not going to get an opportunity to honor his corpse before he's buried. And so she literally takes her oil and breaks it very expensive and begins anointing him for what he's about to go through. And the disciples freak out, and they're like, what are you doing? We could have sold this and given it to the poor, and this is a waste. And they start slandering her, and Jesus is like, hold on a minute. No, 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 no. Everywhere the gospel's preached, I want what she has done – included in my gospel and you're like what's that all about and I get the sense that she understood that she was about to lose this messiah that she loved she understood he was about to die and the disciples are still sitting around talking about what they could do with the money if they sold it you know they don't get it she did yeah
0: and I love that and uh, I'll mention three interesting things that I think really shed some light on that Number one, Mary and Martha were the sisters of Lazarus. Mm-hmm. So, um, number one, first, top of the list, they knew that resurrection from the dead was a real thing.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was personal to them.
0: Yeah, they knew it. Also, when Jesus came and raised Lazarus from the dead, it says that, that uh, Mary sat at his feet and listened to him teach while Martha was in the kitchen getting mad uh, that Mary wasn't doing more. <laughs> and, she, you know, Martha's like, Lord, tell her to get in and help me. This pasta's not going to boil itself. And uh, I don't know if they had pasta. Uh, But then Jesus (laughs) said, you know, Mary has chosen the better portion. Mm -hmm. I think that Mary was a real student of what Jesus was saying. I think that she tuned into him really well. She understood Mm -hmm. what he was saying. She devoted herself to his teaching. Um, And I think the resurrection, you know, was, was real for her. And then the other thing is about that we could have sold this and given it to the poor. I I believe it was Judas that led the charge on that.
1: Yeah, and totally. some somewhere it ma-
0: yeah. somewhere it makes a note that he said this because he was stealing from them.
1: Hmm. Completely. Yeah. So sure. I mean, <laughs> yeah. She. What I love about Mary of Bethany, and I think of everyone. I mean, put Peter into the mix, and James and John, and I mean, throw them all in there the one who seems to have the best grasp of what Jesus is doing and who he is and who has the healthiest devotional life of anybody that you see prior to the resurrection, I put Mary of Bethany against everyone. Yeah. Every time you see her, every single time, where's she at? She's at the feet of Jesus. Yep. When 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 Martha's running around, she's at the feet of Jesus. When Lazarus dies, she comes weeping, falling at the feet of Jesus. When it's time for – Jesus, to go to the cross, where's she at? She's anointing his feet and his head. Like, she's always at the feet of Jesus. Yeah. And Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, I want this woman honored. Yeah. Um, there's, there's something where you share, you share in the glory of Jesus when you recognize that the best place to be is at his feet.
0: Yes, there's definitely something for us to learn there. There's definitely something mm-hmm. we're being told.
1: And I love part of that, and I don't even know if Mark gets into that. Like, I got to look ahead. But one of the things that I love is when Jesus says, wherever the gospel is preached, I want what she's done to me mentioned, is it's like he is, you know, he's the king. He deserves all the glory. He deserves all the notoriety. He deserves all of the page and ink and everything else. But when somebody comes and humbly comes to his feet, he's like, I want to share my glory with her. I want her mentioned. You know, and it's like <laughs> that's just his heart. When people come in humility, Jesus can't help but want to exalt them.
0: Yeah. It's also another example of Jesus treated women differently.
1: No, for sure. Yeah, for sure. You know,
0: um, I, I'm sure there's at least some of them that said, but she's a woman. You know? <laughs> yep. Yep. And she's smarter than all y'all. All mm-hmm. of y'all, she's smarter than you. <laughs> so, um, no, it's a great story. So um, after the triumphal entry, we come to their exit from Bethany, which is where they'd gone to stay. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. Makes sense. Um, And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he (laughs) came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So a mm-hmm. couple things about that story. Um, you know, when you and I were talking about earlier, like what's kind of representing what, I've always said, I've always believed that the fig tree there in full leaf, full bloom, represented Israel. Mm-hmm. When you looked at it, it looked like it was healthy and everything was going good. Um, but the, the lack of figs to me the figs essentially and their and notably their absence mm-hmm. was a reference to the temple specifically like like Jesus was looking in the temple for something you know and they, yeah. it wasn't there
1: yeah so and the previous day he went in and kind of looked at the temple and he surveyed it and he's you know taking it all in he's been to the temple plenty of times before in his lifetime but now they're coming, they're walking, and if you're coming from Bethany toward Jerusalem, you go over top of the Mount of Olives, and you're you're looking down at the temple. It would have been a spectacular sight back in the world, back in that day. It would have been utterly beautiful, it would have been amazing, and so as an object lesson, it seems, to his disciples, on the way there, they come across this fig tree, and from a distance, man, it looks healthy. <laughs> it looks really beautiful, this is great, hey, I'm going to get some figs, and I was thinking when you said, you know, that he was hungry, it's because Mary and Martha both were like, well, I'm not cooking this time. (laughs) 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 They learned their lesson. But anyway, he comes to this fig tree and it's in leaf, which normally there's no leaves during the winter months. And then when it comes to spring and it's about to grow fruit again, you know, late spring, it begins to sprout. And so it's usually they don't get leafy this early. So it looks healthy, like it's going to have fruit. But then he comes up to it and searches around and it's no fruit. And right in the distance, you know, right the next stop is the temple. And it's just like you said, he's he's looking at a temple that on the outside, my goodness, it looks magnificent. It looks like, you know, it is just glorifying God. It looks like it's, you know, one of the great marvels of the world. And then you get under it and you start looking underneath the exterior and it's it's not only fruitless, but it's rotten to the core. There is no good fruit there. And, you know, Jesus is giving an object lesson on how far the people of Israel had fallen. They had become this fig tree that, yeah. you know, is good at appearances and external stuff. And, oh, look at your robes and your tassels and your temple and, and everything else. But there's no fruit here at all. You're yeah. barren. Appearances are often deceiving.
0: We are who our fruit says we are. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah,
1: and it's – you know, and I also don't think – don't forget, you know, this this is meant to kind of draw your mind again back to Genesis 3 where, you know, humanity is created to be in relationship with God. We're made to be in his presence back in the garden, you know, walking with God in the cool of the day and – the moment that Adam and Eve spit in the face of God and rebel and they think, you know what, we want to do this on their own, What are, what's their immediate thing that they do? They recognize their shame, they recognize their nakedness, and they cover up their fall with fig leaves. And so, you know, when he comes across this fig leaves that's covering something that's against the design of God, a fig tree's made to bear fruit, and it's pretending, you know. Yeah. And Jesus is teaching. He's, he's he's not really mad at a fig tree. He's giving an object lesson for where the nation had come. But that's what, that's what the church, the people of God back in those days, that's what they had become. They were putting on a show, a masquerade. They were covering themselves with fig leaves to where they looked presentable on the outside, but underneath it was shameful. And it also,
0: I think, puts a spotlight on the fact that um, – You know, the Bible tells us by your fruit, they will know you. Um, Mm -hmm. it tells us, reminds us once again that God expects us to bear fruit. And so one of the things that it is fair for us to be doing is to be asking ourselves, do we know what fruit is? And, Mm -hmm. and are we producing any fruit? You know, do we have, are we living a life of fruitfulness for the Lord? Um, I know that there was uh, a time when, when I was with a, a group of believers that were very, very evangelistic, very focused on soul winning. And believe me, mm-hmm. those things are important. No question. On the other hand, it was like in their mind, this fruit meant people that you had led to the Lord. Period. End. That's it. That's all. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, are you leading people to Jesus? If you are, you're bearing fruit. If you're not, whoa. Um, And then I'm kind of like, but over here Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is, and I start running through things. And they're Mm kind of like, well, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's not your fruit. Oh, um, goodness. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But it's our fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in us. Mm -hmm. Sort of like I don't get it, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I never had much use wild. for I never had much use for that interpretation honestly. But they were very clear on it. They were very clear on what they were saying. The fruit that was on the vine in John 15, that fruit was people that you led to Christ. And if you didn't lead anybody to Jesus, Samuel, you were going to get cut off and thrown in the fire. Mm-hmm. And I'm
1: like, wow. And, Okay. You know, and this again is another it's an it's a warning, you know, as a pastor, as an as an elder in the church, you know, you what Jesus is he's going into a city where it is entirely dressed up in religion, you know, they have yes. the respect, they they command the obedience of the people, they're dressed in robes, they got all the religiosity down pat. And Jesus just looks at that and he's like, "Gross. You have made this all about yourselves." You've done this so that people bow to you. You've done this so you can make a name for yourself and you can control the masses. You're doing it all in the name of racking up more fame and more power and more influence for yourselves. And there's no fruit for the kingdom of God. And he's disgusted by it. And honestly, like, there's there's a, there's a sense in which, like, we need to evaluate our lives. And imagine, you know, if Jesus walked into our ministry, our personal ministry in life, and looked at how we live. Are we living so that people look at us, or do we use religion so that we amass more control, or power, or influence, or you know, like it's it's gut check time, and you try to imagine, okay, you know, what is my fruitfulness? Am I am am I spreading an aroma that makes people want to draw near to Jesus, not Sam? Because um, I think that was the the great error. Of the religious leaders, as they'd made that about themselves, they they'd used religion to advance their own names, yeah. and Jesus was disgusted by it.
0: Yes. Um, so we're going to have a uh, we're going to have a, a, another thing that happens now in between those two things, and then we're going to get back to the fig tree. So mm-hmm. put your finger in the put your finger in your Bible at that point. First, we're going to go do something else. <laughs> Um, What we have is a very, very famous story, and it has been misused so many times, Hmm. I don't even know what to think about it. It is used (laughs) as a rationalization, a justification for angry behavior, for attacking other people. Well, Jesus overturned tables in the temple. Yeah. Let's see about that. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem. were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. So, some explanation here, I think, is in order. There were two Mm -hmm. things that are mentioned by, I mean, there there were tables of people buying and selling, and then two things that are mentioned by name, like two specific uh, areas of commerce. I tend to believe that the reason for that is that there was more than just those two things there. That the Pharisees and the chief priests had said, this is a great place to have an open-air market. You want to sell your shawls and your and your uh, street food and uh, sandals? You got sandals? Come on. Set them out. Here. But the money changers and those who sold pigeons were two very specific things. The money changers, you had to pay a temple tax or a temple fee or offered when you would get there. Uh, was it a tax? It was a tax, right? Temple tax. Yeah, sure. So you had to pay the that. Constant upkeep of the temple. Right. So you had an obligation to pay that, but only in a very specific currency that was somewhat familiar, similar to the Hebrew shekel. Um, But it wasn't the coin of the realm. It wasn't Roman. It wasn't something that you'd have in your purse normally. Um, And so you'd get there with this Roman coin, things that you could use to actually buy stuff, and you'd find out that they would only (laughs) – take this coin of the temple, not the coin of the realm. And so these money changers were there to say, yeah, no problem. We'll be happy to exchange your nasty Roman money for this great temple money. Uh, you know, there's a, there's an exchange rate, however. Yes, an exchange rate that deeply favored the money changers. Mm-hmm. They were gouging the people on this process. Mm-hmm. Now, what about the pigeons? Well, the pigeons were, you were supposed to have a sacrifice that was judged acceptable It had to be kosher It had to be proper and if you brought some animal from your flocks all the way to jerusalem first of all you're bringing an animal an awful long way we almost got to jerusalem this year for the feast what happened the dove died we had to go back home and get another one so you know what they were doing here was saying don't worry about the effort involved in bringing your own animals in for sacrifice here at Animals Are Us and Sacrifice Plus, we've got pigeons <laughs> that we have pre-inspected, and they are guaranteed acceptable for a sacrifice. If you brought your own animal in, somebody had to look at it. The priest had to look at it and mm-hmm. see if it was acceptable. And so this was a way that you could have the most convenience possible, except if you thought those doves were cheap, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so these two things in particular were going on, and mm-hmm. – They were both, in a way, commercializing, cheapening, making trivial the things with spiritual significance there. They were saying, Mm -hmm. your sacrifice doesn't matter because it's a sacrifice. It matters because it's a proper pigeon. Your Mm -hmm. coin doesn't matter because it's your coin given to worship God, given to support the temple. No. It matters because it's the right kind of coin.
1: And... You know, so what they're doing essentially is they're barring people from being able to worship who are poor. You know, you would, you would show up. And by the way, when they're selling these pigeons, it's not pigeons and doves were sold for those that were too poor to afford a lamb. Like you go to Leviticus five and other places in the Old Testament law and it made provisions that said, Hey, if you're too poor to be able to afford an unblemished lamb, come with a dove. It's like when Jesus is dedicated as an infant. Mary and Joseph are too poor. They they offer doves, right, because they're too poor. And so it's not just that they're, you know, gouging the rich and these foreigners that come with lots of money. They're gouging people that are too poor to even have a normal sacrifice who are buying the pigeons and the the doves, which were more readily available. And so a lot of people who can't afford this would have been turned away from offering proper sacrifice to God because… These religious people are gouging them, which you know you 've got to imagine when Jesus shows up and he sees that the people who are supposed to be the ones drawing people in so that they can worship God and enter into this experience where they where they feel the nearness of God instead are coming across all these man made barricades so that people can enrich themselves rather than leading people into the worship of God, and Jesus is furious with that.
0: Yeah, and he is furious. He's very upset, and he does turn over tables, Mm -hmm. but there's nothing here that talks about him striking and injuring people. There's nothing here that talks about him, you know, he was angry, there's no question. But to Mm -hmm. say that violence is okay because Jesus overturned some tables, first of all, the reason behind your violence is not that this temple area has been, you know, made mm-hmm. corrupted. You you know, you're angry because somebody doesn't wear the same stupid T-shirt you do. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why you're angry. You're going to go punch them in the nose over that. <laughs> this is not permission to punch them in the nose over that. Um, Correct. You know,
1: by the way. But Jesus is intense here. Well oh, no, he like, is. And, he is, in the other, and in, the, in the other gospel, it talks about how he pulled out a whip and began, whoosh, whoosh, you know, and he's basically driving them out. That doesn't mean he's whipping them across the back, but he's he's using that whip to drive them away. As the idea, and what Jesus is doing here is very—it's prophetic. In addition to just actually accomplishing what you would see with your eyes when Jesus comes to the temple, he's saying. The true temple should be a place where man meets God, but because it's so filled with the corruption of mankind, this is my response. I am not going to allow God to be sold. I am going to break out a whip, and I'm going to drive that evil out of here because this is meant to be a house of prayer. And you pause for a moment, and you go – Okay, in the Gospel of John, Jesus is comparing himself to the temple. And what does he say? Tear this temple down, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And then what do you see that happens to Jesus? He is going to be sold for silver. He's made into a commodity. He is going to have somebody, the Romans, with whips that begin shredding him. He is going to be corrupted with all the evils of mankind. And he is going to become the corrupted temple. Why? So... And taking all of your corruptions away from you, he becomes the corrupt temple. The one who's never sinned became sin, and he becomes, you know, all these judgments that he's announcing on the temple right here as we're reading, he takes upon himself. Why? So that you can be the absolute pure temple of God in whom the Holy Spirit now dwells. But it's fascinating, you know, he comes to the temple and he sees, you know, Commerce and people sold for silver coins, and you know all the whip breaking like all of that he takes upon himself and the passion, and yeah. i think I think that's fascinating and by the way, if you are the temple and in the temple which you are, you're now compromising and you're selling yourself and you're you're giving yourself to over to anything and everything but God, what does the spirit do inside of you? You know, it's like the, it's now the Spirit's role that in your heart, He begins overturning tables because He will not share you with another. You're going to start feeling conviction. You're going to start feeling grief over sin. You're going to feel like if there's something that's keeping you from drawing near to the Lord, you can bet that the Holy Spirit's going to start overturning tables, and you're going to feel <laughs> some turmoil inside of you. And this reveals the heart of God. He's unwilling to share His temple with the corruptions of the world. And so he goes to work to drive them out. And he does that with us as well.
0: Right. Another bit of trivia here, verse 16 says, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Every time I've read that verse, I kind of disregarded it. I'm like, I don't know what that means. Maybe it's the guys delivering the pigeons. I don't know. (laughs) Um, So I dug a little deeper this time in it and read some commentaries of first century customs and whatnot. And what that's referring to is that the outer area of the temple had become such a kind of corrupt, commercial, not used for its intended purposes, which we'll get to in just a second, that people were using it as a shortcut. They would come in the door one way and out the door the other. Because Mm -hmm. the temple was big. And so if you're walking from one side of the temple to the other, the fastest way is to carry things through the temple, and Jesus was saying, "No, the temple is not your handy shortcut to the other side." Um, and that's what that sentence is referring to. I never under—I'm mm. sixty-one years old. You know, uh, what does that make? Forty-six years a Christian. Now I know what that sentence is about. He would—he would, right. he would I, not allow I anyone didn't know to that. carry. Yeah, what's well, it, you see? It's so trivial, yeah, that you kind of say, but but it's not trivial because he's saying. This place is important. Mm -hmm. It's not here to be the path through someone's backyard that Mm -hmm. you just have always taken when you're trying to cut the corner. So,
1: you know, a couple of weeks ago, Eric Most is going to be preaching on this on Sunday. Wonderful, wonderful guy, one of our teaching elders. um, Or he's not a teaching elder. He's a ruling elder, but he'll be preaching. Anyway, he was pointing out something that I'd never thought about with this passage, and it's this. That Josephus, when he's writing about the Passover of the first century, he says that they would sacrifice that Passover. It was some crazy amount, like 250,000 lambs. I think it's something like that. It's right in that neighborhood. Were sacrificed. And he says, So I want you to imagine that in the court of the Gentiles, which is where all this commerce is, you know, in the court of the Jews, it's really quiet and nice. You know, you don't have any of this. But it, if they went through that many lambs and you had all these people coming from all over the world back to Jerusalem for the Passover, it would have been nonstop filled with thousands upon thousands of lambs at any time, and they would constantly need more and more and more and more being brought in. And so the idea that you're going to be in the court of the Gentiles and be able to worship or focus or concentrate or step anywhere without stepping in mess You know, it would have been almost impossible to worship. And the Jews were like, eh, who cares? It's the Gentiles. Right. And Jesus wasn't having it.
0: Yeah. That really was the number one thing that Jesus was upset about. People have said for years he was upset about the the, uh, money changers gouging the people. Yes, he was. He calls them a den of robbers. He wasn't happy about that. But the reason why he was so furious is how the court of the Gentiles was being misused verse 17 he gets right to it he says and he was teaching them and saying to them is it not written my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations but you have made it a den of robbers and that's really what you were saying there that's really just the point which is god wanted even the gentiles to have a place to come to pray to worship him to make sacrifices And Mm -hmm. in, in the way that things are set up at this time, the Gentiles couldn't come in with the Jews. So the court of the Gentiles was the provision he made for them. He wanted Mm -hmm. them to have this space. And the chief priests and elders, the Jews, had been exactly as you said. They went, yes, no problem. You can use that space. You know, it's supposed to be for the Gentiles, but they, they, who cares about the Gentiles? Um, and I really think that's what put Jesus over the edge, honestly.
1: Mm-hmm. When, he's, when he says that second part of verse 17, when he says, but you have made it into a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah 7, and it's it's a very pointed reference, and if they knew the prophet Jeremiah's writings, which they would have, they would have understood what he was hinting at, because when Jeremiah says that you have made it into a den of robbers, talking about the dwelling place of God… After that, he says, Hey, why don't you take a stroll up to Shiloh and see what God did? So this is Jeremiah writing right after what Jesus is quoting. And he says, Go up to Shiloh and see, see how, see how they're doing. And what he's referring to in the book of Jeremiah is that's where the tabernacle used to be, the portable temple, right? The tent. And that's where people would draw near. And that's where the ark of the covenant was. And that's where God's glory dwelt. And the priests, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli they had become so utterly wicked and they were abusing the people sound familiar that God allowed the tabernacle and the city of Shiloh to be overtaken um it was destroyed they actually captured the ark of the covenant and Shiloh that would be the last time that Shiloh was ever the capital of Israel, where, where God's glory dwelt. And it, because of their wickedness, it was destroyed. And Jesus is kind of hinting back saying, Hey, do you remember that? Remember when the lit- religious leaders were so nasty that they exploited people who came to worship them and Hophni and Phinehas were taking advantage of women and doing all that kind of stuff? You remember what happened? Yeah. You remember that? God allowed the place where his glory dwelled to be destroyed. And later on, as Jesus is going to do this last week of ministry, he's going to flat out say, this city will once again be destroyed. God's glory will not tolerate it when his people are this wicked. And when they exploit the poor and the defenseless and the vulnerable, he will lift his glory from this place again. And that's when Jesus says, you've made it into a den of robbers. They should have read the next couple verses in Jeremiah, and they would have gone, uh-oh. <laughs> you know yeah, that? Yes.
0: We should probably pay attention here. <laughs> well, let's, let's see what the chief priests and scribes did. Let's see if they said, that sounds like Jeremiah. Somebody get us a scroll. No. Uh, verse 18, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. I just imagine the crowd. This is another one of Mark imagines himself in a weird place. But I could imagine the crowd going, Wait, this is part of the temple? (laughs) This is this is like a part of the temple? This isn't just lamb parking? I thought this was lamb parking. (laughs) I thought this is where we brought our lambs and parked them. Oh wow. You know, Jesus these people were astonished at Jesus' teaching. And then it says, and when evening came, they went out of the city. And these chief, these Pharisees, the Pharisees and the chief priests will, they're not going to let this lay, they're still hopping mad at Jesus, and they're going to come back at him once more before the end of this chapter, and Jesus is going to give them a master class in Mm -hmm. logic. He is going Mm -hmm. to defeat them, like totally pop their bubble in a way that they feel like we can't be mad.
1: You know, it makes me wonder when when they leave the city after Jesus cleanses the temple and he's starting to get into it with the religious leaders and not pulling punches anymore at all. If you're a disciple and you leave there, you're kind of like, you know, that, that, that coronation, that, that didn't go as I planned. <laughs> you know, Here, you've really made angry all the people who are supposed to be the ones anointing you for office. I'm not sure how this is going, Jesus, yeah. you know. I don't I don't think that they're approving of you yet, you know. Yeah. So. <laughs> you ha- you haven't won this argument with them yet.
0: So we come next to the let the lesson that is taught by the withered fig tree. Verse 20, it reads as they passed by in the morning they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter, God love Peter. <laughs> God love Peter because I'm telling you Peter is there, ladies and gentlemen, to say the things we would say but mm-hmm. would be maybe afraid to say. He was totally bold to speak up, an amazing man.
1: God he felt safe.
0: He stepped in it a lot too, but yes, he trusted Jesus. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them and said, Okay, guys, have faith in God. Like, you're surprised. I cursed a fig tree and it withered, and you're surprised. May forgive you your trespasses. So there's three things here. First thing, number one, is Jesus is not telling you that you can move a mountain just by saying, "Go jump into the sea." Um, that's not that's not the case here. Uh, in Hebrew literature and writings, the mountain was often used to represent uh, an an impenetrable barrier or an mm-hmm. an impossible task. Um, so it's it's not uh, it's hyperbole. You know, he's saying what he's saying is that if you have faith in God, nothing will be beyond you. Nothing will be impenetrable. Nothing will be impossible. But if you're praying for a mountain to move, you need a little therapy. Uh, this, is not, <laughs> this is not something that's going to happen because I've heard people say, you know, if you have faith, as a grain of a mustard seed. You could say to that mountain, get up and go mm-hmm. into the sea. And I'm like, what that tells you is that nobody in the history of the world ever has had faith as a grain of mustard seed. Before Sam gives us his take on this, I would just like to confess to we had a disconnect here. Something happened in our connection. And it was a while before Sam got reconnected. I paused the recorder part of this. And then when he came back and launched into his explanation, which was a very good explanation, and he will repeat it for you. You're not going to miss it. But it was not recorded. so
1: I'm once, pretty sure that that part of our conversation would have set off revival, but now it's lost forever. Oh,
0: no. You, you're going to just say the same thing. <laughs> but I'm just letting I'm you know, anytime somebody looks at me and thinks, man, you've had all these years of production work and radio, you're, you, know, you know so much about tech, I bet you never make mistakes.
1: <laughs> huh. Well, I will say that in 165 episodes, I think that's happened twice. So, <laughs> that's a pretty good track record. Yeah. So, what we were saying was, Jesus is coming in the morning, they're coming back over the Mount of Olives, and they're headed to Jerusalem. Peter sees the withered tree, and remember, what does that represent? It's meant to represent the temple, right? And so, he, he looks at a tree that's beautiful on the outside, it's not bearing fruit, and Jesus cursed it, and now it's dead, and he says, it'll, it'll never produce fruit again. But what's behind that illustration is Jesus has just declared a judgment on the temple that they are making it into a den of robbers. Well, if if the fig tree withers when he curses it, what happens to the temple? Well, it's going to be destroyed. And 70 AD, just just a few decades later, the temple is going to be destroyed. And now listen to what Jesus says. He says, have faith in God. Which, by the way, for those of us that are that are Protestants and Reformed, like, that's salvation, right? Salvation by faith alone and Christ alone, through grace alone, all that. He says, have faith in God, and I'll tell you what that will accomplish. You can say to this mountain, and notice he uses the particular. He doesn't say a mountain. He doesn't say some mountain. He says this mountain. You can say to it, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and if you believe, it'll be done for you. Well, that's a wild statement. What, what is this mountain? Well, it's the temple mount. And what does the temple mount represent? It's how you draw near to God. But here's the thing about the temple mount is there's all sorts of barriers that keep you from God. For example, you got to come with a sacrifice and you got to find a priest and you got to draw near to a temple and you got to obey and you got to be clean and you got to do all these things. And Jesus is saying, if you have faith in me, You don't need the Temple Mount anymore. You can say, pick yourself up and throw yourself into the sea, which, remember, sea is always emblematic of death. You don't need it anymore. Why? You don't need lambs. Because you have the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You don't need to chase after those priests because you have the high priest of heaven who stands in front of you, who always intercedes to the Father on your behalf. You don't need that temple because the true temple of God stands before you, and I'm going to cleanse you to make you into the temples of God. And the 613 laws of the Old Testament that also keep you from God, not because they're bad, but because you are, I'm going to fulfill on your behalf everything that you seek to find on that mountain you now have in me, so don't let it separate you from God anymore. All the religiosity and systems you can say to this mountain with faith, throw yourself into the sea, and all of those barriers are gone. Mm. That's, that's what Jesus is teaching here. It's revolutionary. He's not saying, you know, move a mountain with mind power. No. Right. He's teaching something that's brilliantly theological, that faith triumphs over religiosity. It triumphs over ritualism. Faith is, has the power to throw all that into the sea. That's good.
0: And all made all the better by the fact that this is the third time you've said it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, once he said it to the space, I don't know where it went when he dropped the next time you sent it to a recorder that was shut off, and finally here you have it. So uh, no, that, that's that's good. Um, well, whether whether you however you feel about it, I think at this point it's say, safe to say that Jesus now begins to teach them something about prayer.
1: Hmm.
0: And because one of the things,
1: you know, well, can I say ahead, one sure. other thing that dawned on me this week when I was looking at this passage? I, I've noticed Jesus talks a lot about throwing things into the sea. Um, it, it's like God's thing. You, you go back to to the the flood, and he he washes the world away under the sea, but he lets Noah survive. When when Pharaoh's armies destroyed in the Red Sea, when Moses writes his song and sings, he says, "You know the the horse and its rider, you have hurled into the sea." When you think about Jonah, he says, "Throw me into the sea." Even when you get to Revelation, it's talking about the final judgment. He he throws angel throws a millstone into the water and says, "Like that, Babylon will be thrown down." And then, you know, you have the authority of heaven saying that he's going to throw the devil and his angels into the lake of fire. He's going to throw death itself into the lake of fire. He's going to throw hell into the lake of fire. So there's like all this – and then Jesus, in a couple chapters ago, he says, if someone causes a little one to stumble, it's better for him to have a millstone tied around his neck and for him to be thrown into the depths of the sea. And here he's talking about mountains being thrown into the depths of the sea. And there's one other time where Jesus talks about something being thrown into the sea that I just – I really love. And it's in in Luke's gospel in chapter 17 – And he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to a mulberry tree, uproot yourself and go be planted into the sea. And you think, what's wrong with the mulberry tree? (laughs) You know, like, where did that come from? And it took me a long time to figure this out. But the most popular poet in Jesus's day, and this is just beautiful to me, but the most popular poet in Jesus's day was a guy named Ovid. And he wrote a poem called Metamorphoses that was famous. And you find out that Shakespeare basically plagiarized him. Um, for Romeo and Juliet But in that story there's, there's two A couple And it's kind of Forbidden love They're not allowed To be together Sound familiar Romeo and Juliet sure. But they agree That they're going to meet And they're going to meet Underneath the mulberry tree And so the woman Shows up this bee She shows up and she sees that a lion is devouring prey and it's got blood all over its mouth. And then the lion charges her and she runs away and she barely escapes. But the lion grabs hold of her cloak and begins, you know, shredding it and everything else. Well, then her lover shows up and sees a lion and the lion is shredding this garment that belonged to her and he assumes, oh my gosh, she's dead. And so he kills himself and then she comes back and finds her lover who has killed himself and she offers up this prayer to the gods and then she kills herself and then the myth goes, and so Ovid lived when Jesus was alive, same time period, and the myth goes that the blood that she, so it's it's heartbreak, it's unrequited love, it's all these things in a broken world But her blood goes out and it touches the hearts of the gods and they decree, the Greek gods decree, that every time at the ripeness of the fruit, the mulberry tree will turn blood red to honor their sacrifice. And so, what is the mul- – and he says, it's a, they say it's a sign of death. From now on, the mulberry tree is a sign of death and it's heartbreak and unrequited love. And so, when Jesus says, you can say to the mulberry tree, be thrown into the sea, again, that's not Jesus saying you have Jedi mind power, <laughs> you know, when you're a Christian. He's saying to the symbol of death and heartbreak of that era, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to death itself – Get out of my way. Throw yourself into the sea. By faith, death dies. Heartbreak dies. The broken world dies. Unrequited love dies. And so, Jesus is actually using a pop culture reference when he says that, but he's always, I love the stuff that he wants to throw into the sea because I'm looking forward to watching him throw hell into the sea and death into the sea. And by the way, what else does Revelation say? That the sea gives up all her dead? It's not just talking about sailors, you know? The sea is compared to the great grave, and there's going to be a day when Jesus commands the grave, to give up all her dead. That's his power, and he's constantly talking about that. But I I love his heart. Nothing – at the bottom of that, what he's he's teaching with all the throwing into the sea stuff, nothing is going to get in his way of spending the rest of eternity with you. Religiosity, death itself – He's going to throw it all into the sea. Mm -hmm. And by faith, you can tell it to get out of your way. Nothing can keep you from him.
0: Mm. I like that. It's a a profound thought. It's certainly more profound than what I remember thinking as a young, you know, vacation Bible school kid reading that verse for the first time and thinking, but what happened to the monkey and the weasel? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You keep expecting there's always going to be deep spiritual thoughts coming out of me, and sometimes uh, it's it. just nonsense. So, yeah.
1: But the other way you could read that is like, okay, well, I must not have the faith of a mustard seed because no mulberry trees are moving for me. Well, that's not what it's talking about.
0: Yeah. Yes. At no point has Jesus ever promised us uh, telekinetic powers. <laughs> so if that's what you were hoping for – uh they don't exist. So let's look at uh, the final passage here where we see the authority of Jesus being challenged. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. I made a note in study notes. I was trying to think that chief priests and scribes and elders, that's pretty much the Sanhedrin, right?
1: Hmm. It would have included them for sure, yeah.
0: Yeah. So basically this was, we went and got everybody. We've got the religious rulers here. We've got, mm-hmm. you know, we brought Congress and the House and the Senate are both here and the president's hanging around somewhere in the back. We got them all here. <laughs> so they came to him and they said to him, verse 28, by what authority are you doing these things or who gave you this authority to do them? And what they're hoping for is just give us the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. Just give us the wrong answer. Say the wrong thing so we can dispatch you right now. Instead, Jesus said to them, verse 29 I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. <laughs> Verse 31, they scurried away. I picture them, by the way, all moving in a pack. Like, you know, like one of those cartoon things where part of the crowd stays as a clump and just goes <laughs> off to the left. So, And they discussed it with one another, verse 31, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Good, good question. But, shall, but we, shall we say from man? Well, they were afraid of the people. Because they all held that John really was a prophet, and he was. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. That, once again, like we talked about before, I don't know if they could see it, but a red cape has just been pulled over their heads (laughs) while they're running at Jesus. Um, He has handled their question perfectly. Mm -hmm. You know, know, perfectly. Um, They weren't able to answer him. They couldn't disagree with him. they just like, we don't know. And that was the the end of it.
1: And the question just totally reveals them. It's it's not just that they can't answer and get him, you know, to make an incriminating statement so they can kill him. But everybody who's watching, they indict themselves even with the we don't know answer. Which I imagine was pretty humiliating for them to begin with because they seem to know everything. <laughs> you know. But on this one, he's he's getting them to humiliate themselves and show the absurdity of of the way that they were living. But it's I'm curious, like in my heart of hearts, do you think they knew John was a was a prophet? Um I don't
0: think they would let themselves admit it. John was way too far out of their power structure and completely uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. And if you were going to be embraced by the chief priests and the elders, one thing you had to be was controllable. You had mm-hmm. to submit to their authority. And John never did that.
1: But it just, I mean, regardless, so now, so let's say they do believe that he's from man, which clearly their answer shows. Like, you know, if they're saying we don't know, that's because they're afraid of the crowd. They really do believe he came from man, but they don't want to say it out loud. What does that show? It shows that their greater motive is, has nothing to do with allegiance to God. They're not about truth, or they would have said it and taken the consequences. They bend to whatever is going to enrich them politically, give them more power, give them more status. And you just get such a sense that they are utterly spineless um, and will do anything to be able to maintain their power structure like you said. It's No matter how they answer that, Jesus is so brilliant. If they say, oh, he was a prophet, then everybody goes, well, then you're totally ungodly because you're ignoring the voice of God. If they say, you know, he's from man, Jesus has turned it on them to where the people are going to be really upset with them, and even when they say we don't know, you know, now they're revealed to be fools. I thought you were the religious people. Like, yeah. He so brilliantly undresses them no matter which way they go. Yeah. Um, because they were already in error. You know, they – but Jesus has totally, totally revealed them you
0: know, to in the crowds. The, in the uh, study notes uh, this week, my comment, commentary on this portion of it was uh, when, they de- when they admit defeat, he is justified and not impolite in refusing to answer theirs. That being said, their question is still an excellent one. And it's one we need to answer for ourselves before we can come to him for salvation. Mm -hmm. Jesus was either the greatest and most evil con man Mm -hmm. to ever have lived, or he was some deranged lunatic living in the ultimate fantasy world. He's either one of those two, or he is who he claimed to be. The Son of God, God of the flesh, fully man and fully God, who delivers His people from sin, death, and judgment. Mm-hmm. This was, you know, this was decision time, and the and if you make a decision of we don't know, that's that you better have an asbestos robe, is what I'm saying. <laughs> uh, you know, um, it's just I felt like this was one of those moments where, and it's going to start happening now. Mm-hmm. And it's going to keep happening all through the rest of the New Testament that it's going to be decision time it is decision time mm-hmm. who is jesus
1: mm-hmm. and the the wild thing is it really makes you you see the contrast even inside the temple structure and the religious structure as you have a bunch of guys who you know Are just, they've got the death grip on power and control, and they refuse to say anything that could jeopardize that. And to the contrast, you have Jesus who's coming into the city, who's God in the flesh, and yet he doesn't lord it over everybody. He's not demanding. He comes and says, You know, "I I am going to lay down my life for you. I'm enduring poverty, and I'm enduring ridicule, and I'm enduring scorn, and I'm enduring. All of the things that I certainly don't deserve, but as a king, as your king, as the highest exalted one, the anointed one, the Messiah, I'm laying down everything I deserve, and I'm taking up all the injustice and all the pain and all the sin and shame and everything else, and I will take that upon myself, I'll give away in the temporal sense I'll give away all rights to the throne and all rights to glory, and I'll endure the shame. I'll lay it all down for you and you see the contrast of these religious leaders who refuse to give an inch on anything. it's all about preserving self and preserving power, and you just you're left to ask if he had evil motives, why would you lay it all down like what what does he gain out of this right he's He's, it's the most selfless act of leadership ever, and he's entirely others-focused, entirely selfless, entirely sacrificial, and that lends him. I mean, granted, the fact that he's God lends it, but when you consider what is his motive here, he's trustworthy. What has he held back from you? you know if you if you're looking at the religious leaders, <laughs> there's a lot of things and sure. motives for sure. them to have no credibility or trust with you. look at how they enrich themselves look at look at all the reasons and motives why they have to do the things they do. but then you ask yourself what is jesus Jesus' motives because he gives away far more than he'll ever get he's He's willing to lay everything down even his own life for me and he asks that I give far less in return. You know, he wants me to lay down my life, but I'm not an infinite being. I have, what can I offer him that's worthy of that kind of love? Nothing. And it makes him just extraordinarily trustworthy and beautiful and kind. And it just begs the question, like, by what authority do you command these things? Well, he's God. And he doesn't ask us to give anything that he hasn't already given for us.
0: And that is a good word, and it's one that we're going to end on today. Folks, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and it's been profitable for you. Um, if you'd like to correspond with us, you can reach us at outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's r-i-o-vistachurch.com, Vista where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com slash Water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or on our free Rear Church smartphone app. It's available for iOS or Android devices. Sam and I will be back next week with more from the Gospel of Mark and the mission of Jesus. And maybe one of these days, my voice will join us again. (laughs) Either way, we look forward to seeing you then.